Yeah, there's a cyclist here. <laughs> and, and so I'm, I'm drawn, you know, if I'm at a cola, I've got to climb through the plants. But I'm, I'm drawn to them and I find them and I say, hey, you're, you're in the cycling. Are we talking like recreational or competitive? Like what kind of FTP are we talking about? Do you know your VO2 max? As a matter of fact, just show me your calves. <laughs> so normal stuff, right? But other people, they're into weird stuff. I remember my grandma was in her 90s and we found out that she was a, a nationally ranked bridge player. All right, that's a card game. I didn't know there were national rankings for it, but grandma was flying all over the country for bridge tournaments. No one knew, we were like, grandma? So some of us are, are into strange things, some of us are into normal things, but we all have things that we are, we are incredibly passionate about, things that, that make us come alive. And I'll be talking with one of you, and, and that, that thing comes up, whether it's like, fiction or, or pickleball or, or the Chiefs or education reform or Call of Duty or whatever it is, and the person just lights up and, and just goes for 20 minutes, you know? That's, that's a moment of relational breakthrough where you've got to know them because you've learned what's in their heart, what they love. One of the reasons we're, we're doing this series, Encounters with Jesus, throughout the winter is that we can reacquaint ourselves with, with our Savior. We can learn more about who he is, what he's like. We see him interact with all these, these ordinary, unsuspecting people, one at a time or in small groups. And one of the things that we see is his heart. We see what he loves. We see what stirs him up. We see what he's passionate about. And in this little encounter, we see Jesus eating with a Pharisee, and this woman comes in off the street, and it gives us this great glimpse into what's going on in each of their hearts. The religious guy's heart, what he loves, the woman's heart, what she loves, and Jesus's heart, what, what he loves. His heart for the woman and his heart for all of us. So I'm, I'm super excited about this passage. I'm super excited for this, this whole Sunday. It's been amazing already. We also have a baptism. It's Epiphany Sunday. I'm into that sort of thing. I want to pray for us that God would reveal himself to us through his word. And we're going to get into this story, which I think is going to, going to be great for us. But Father God, you, you speak to us through your word. You, you are alive. You are the one true God. You come into our lives like a wrecking ball at times, like a, a soft whisper at other times. And Lord, we need your voice, we need your word. Father, would you speak to us? Father, our, our hearts are yours. Even more, would you reach the core of our beings? Would you change what we love, what we are excited about, what we're passionate about? May we, may we leave behind some of the things that we are, we are, are maybe even way too into or, or maybe just overcome us with a new and fresh desire for you. Our prayer is this, Lord, increase in our hearts. Give us a hunger for you. Increase our desire for you. In Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to look at uh, three themes in the passage, need, forgiveness, and love. And we're going to start with need. And so the story is Jesus is eating with some Pharisees. And so Jesus doesn't just eat with tax collectors and sinners, but he eats with anyone who will invite him into their house. And so he's eating with a group of Pharisees 
When, when a woman walks in off the street, lets herself in, and, and begins to, to wash Jesus' feet. It's, it's a, a, an odd and a, and a shocking and a, and a scandalous moment. This woman walks in, and the text just says of her, a woman in that town who had lived a sinful life. Now, the Bible's pretty generous, so if it just describes you as having a sinful life, that, that tells you something. But listen to what it also says about her. It says that she learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. So here's a, a woman whose, whose life is anything but put together, is anything but good, but she has this thing going for her, that she will find Jesus, find her way into the presence of Jesus, and, and collapse herself at his feet. Forget all the social customs, she will just go right in the front door, find Jesus, and pour out her life on him. It says, verse 38, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So the first thing I want you to recognize is that this is, is an encounter that provides this stark contrast between two individuals, the, the Pharisee and the, the so-called sinful woman. I mean, the first individual, Simon the Pharisee, is not Simon the disciple, but he's a religious leader. He's highly educated. He's got status in the community. He's respected. He's a, he's a good person. He's followed the law his whole life. He's probably very comfortable financially. And then second, we have this woman who is a, a polar opposite. I mean, she has, she has totally messed up her life. The implication of the text is that she is a, a, a woman of the night, that she has, has made her work this, this, this awful thing. And so she has, she has come with, with absolutely no status, very, very few relationships, zero to not, little to zero power, in the world. And so the guests would have been sort of stretched out around the table. If you can picture it, remember that the tables are low in that day, so they're, they're leaning in towards the table on pillows with their, their hands at the table, but their feet are sort of stretched out behind them. As we learned from Austin last week, feet are nasty, so feet are in the back. And this, this woman comes in, and Jesus probably doesn't even notice her at first because it says she, she comes up from behind. And the first thing it seems like he notices is that she begins to weep, and her tears cover his feet. She first notices this woman by her tears. She feels her presence as she cries. And then she, she lets her hair down. She begins to wipe his feet with her hair. And then she takes this jar of perfume and breaks it open and, and anoints Jesus's now this alabaster jar, it carried a, a perfume that was very valuable. The jar itself would have been very valuable. So a, a woman like this would have used it in her line of work to, to put a few drops on the feet of a man to help sort of relax him. But she doesn't use a few drops with Jesus. That's not what she's doing here. 
She takes what's probably her most precious, valuable possession in all the world, and she breaks it into and, and pours out all of the perfume. She holds nothing back. She pours it all out on Jesus' feet. Now, I think there's even more to this jar here because this jar represents the little bit of power that she has, maybe power over men, the little bit of wealth that she has. It, it represents her, her work. This kind of represents everything she has left, her, her work, her livelihood. It's as if she takes her life and breaks it in two and pours it out on the feet of Jesus. Now we hear the Pharisee's thoughts. He says to himself, which we've said before is your first problem, be careful thinking around Jesus because he'll know exactly what you're thinking and it'll go in the Bible. And he says she, he knew what kind of woman this is and Jesus should have known what kind of woman this is that she's a sinner and the worst of all sins. In fact, in, in Jewish custom, this is not in the Old Testament, but one of the, the little laws that the rabbis added was that if a woman let down her hair in public, his, her husband could legally divorce her. It, it was so scandalous for a woman's head to be uncovered and for her hair to be down. And yet this woman just lets her hair down and washes Jesus' feet with it. And so this, I mean, just imagine the tension in the room. All eyes go to Jesus. What is he going to do? He tells a story. Verse 41. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500, 500,000, 500 grand, 500 stacks, and the other 50. So large sum and small sum. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, and so he forgave the debts of both. Turning to Simon the Pharisee, he says, Now which of them will love him more? The Pharisee responded, I suppose the one who had a bigger debt forgiven. Now this is a very short parable. Parables are, are stories with just one simple, uh, often very clear meaning. And so the, the, there's a king or a master, a moneylender, and two people owe him a debt. One is very large, one is, is small, but neither one can pay their debt. And yet the king forgives the debt of both. Essentially, the king bears the cost of these debts. He's paying it himself as he forgives the debt. The one with the small debt forgiven is going to be relieved and happy. He's probably going to have a, a great month, you know. But the one who's had a massive debt for her, she will never forget this. Her life will be changed forever. It's a parable about need. Both of these individuals, the Pharisee and the woman, they both have need. They actually have the same amount of need, but only one of them recognizes it. The Pharisee, he doesn't seek any need in himself. He thinks he has all that he needs. He thinks he is all that he needs. And yet the woman has this one thing. She has need. She has great need. It's why Jesus is so hard on the religious and the rich and the gospels. It's because they have no need of him, and he's willing to let them just walk away from him. And yet think of all the people who have such great needs who come to Jesus. There are only two kinds of responses to Jesus, the response of need, in a response of no need. 
The response of no need says, I've got everything I need, but I'll maybe approach Jesus as a, as a teacher. I maybe have something to learn from him. He might help me kind of improve myself a little bit, but that's, that's no need. The response of need is, Lord, I am a sinner. I have ruined my life, but you can heal me. You can forgive me. You can change me. You can give me hope again. John Tyson has said Jesus is drawn to two things, great faith and great need. If you don't have great faith, then bring your great need to him. There's only one precondition to receiving the gospel. It's not obedience. It's not even repentance. Not at first. It's just your need. You just have to need Jesus. You have to recognize your need. I think so many of us, myself included, we want to hide our needs, right? We want to minimize our needs. We want to diminish our needs. Make it, make it seem like we have everything together, even to ourselves. But could it be that your need is actually one of the most important things that you have? Could it be that your need is the thing that Jesus is looking for? And in fact, your need, that, that thing that you might even hate most about yourself, that if, if you could change anything about yourself, it would be this one thing. Could it be that that's your most valuable thing? Because it's the thing that keeps you coming to the feet of Jesus, breaking your life open and pouring it out. At his feet. Our need is met first with Jesus' forgiveness. That's the second thing, forgiveness. Verse 44. Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon. And so just picture it. He's, he's turning back towards the woman, and yet he's clearly speaking to Simon. He's at the table. He's with the food. She's on the ground. And he says to her, do you see this woman? I came into your house, and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. The first question is, do you see this woman? Simon, do you really see her? Have you looked in her eyes? Do you know who she is? Do you know what she's been through and what's been done to her? Do you really see her as a person made in the image of God? And do you see what she has done? She has taken what is most precious in her life and she has broken it and she has poured it out on me, not just a little drop, but everything. She's breaking her own life in two and pouring it out in worship. Jesus says, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Jesus turning toward her said, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace, your faith has saved you. See, love and forgiveness, they go hand in hand, and both of them are, are rooted in need. Whoever has been, been forgiven Little is going gonna, is gonna to love little. If you've had a relatively small debt canceled, you're going to have relatively small love in response. People who don't think they've been forgiven much, you don't think they've needed a whole lot of forgiveness because they're generally a good, hard-working kind of person. They're going to love Jesus little. 
And they're going to love other people little, especially the poor and needy, especially the ones who have nothing to provide for them. There's going to be little love in their hearts. But the one who has been forgiven much will love much. They will love Jesus like crazy. They will identify with and love those who are poor and needy. Because so we ought to look at our lives and say, which one am I, really? Am I the one who has been forgiven little? Or am I the one who has been forgiven of so, so much? One of the questions you might ask yourself is, how much joy do I really experience? Not just how, how good of a job are you doing in the Christian life, how many of the laws are you following, how, how kind of well-ordered is your, your life and relationships. Now, how much, how much joy do you sense and feel in the presence of God? I'm not talking about just momentary happiness, but, but true inner joy and delight in the Lord. How much gratitude do you have in your heart towards Him and towards the life He's given you? Do you love others, especially the poor and needy? Do you find yourselves continually in the presence of Jesus just pouring out your life in worship? If you know how much you've been forgiven of, if you know the desperate need that you have in the presence of God, you get so much in return. You get the forgiveness of Jesus spoken over you, the blessing of Jesus spoken over you, and you get his love poured out in return. When we were just starting this church in the first few months, even before we were doing Sunday gatherings, we did a a series that was like two or three months long on, on the gospel, the core message of Christianity, and the very first passage that we started with was this one. And I stand by it. We didn't start with one of Paul's letters where he, he so clearly explains the gospel and how it works. We started with this story. First, because Jesus loves stories, but second, because of what it illustrates, true forgiveness Love, an exchange of love. That's what's going on here. This is an exchange of love. At the heart of the gospel is Christ turning towards us, seeing us despite all of our great sin, smiling on us, and saying, I forgive you. Your, your tiny little faith has, has been enough. It has saved you. Go now in peace. See, forgiveness comes as a result of our need, and the other thing that comes is his love. Remember, we learn a lot about somebody by what they love, by what they're passionate about, by what they're, they're into, what stirs them up, what fires them up. And so what does is, what is the Pharisee love? What do we see? He seems like one of the better Pharisees. He's not trying to trap Jesus. He seems genuinely interested in, in like, if he's a prophet or not. But it, it sure seems like he loves his role. He loves his job. He loves his status. He loves his, his home. He loves his, his place in the world. What does the woman love? She is completely at the end of herself. She has, she has nothing left. Accept this, that she heard Jesus was in her village, and she will do anything to get in his presence. Her great love is for Jesus and nothing else. We see her life, her, her, her affection, her desire just 
poured out. Even, even to the great discomfort of everybody else around her, she doesn't care. She just enters the room and breaks the jar open. I mean, it's incredibly bold. She's fine with it. I mean, she's an outcast anyway. She might as well just go all the way, break open the jar, and pour it out on Jesus. That's what she loves. What is Jesus like? What, what stirs up his heart? What is he passionate about? Well, we see that he loves her faith. He loves and, and welcomes her need. He loves her shameless pursuit of him. He loves that she gives everything to him before him. The question that I've been thinking about all week as I've looked at this passage and, and just considered our our, our congregation, and, and this is just kind of the first Sunday of the year, the start of the year, the question I've been asking is how do we get this kind of love in us? How do we increase our love for Jesus? How do we cultivate a, a hunger for God in his presence? The first thing that we see, we see actually four things right out of this passage. The first thing that we see is that we should find Jesus and throw ourselves in his feet. If you want to increase your desire for God, find Jesus and throw yourself at his feet. So many people do this in the gospel. The, the sick, the blind, the lepers, the, the ones whose kids are sick and dying, they don't care anymore. Their need has gotten too great. They find Jesus and just, just throw themselves at his feet. That's the best posture we can take at any time. It doesn't matter if you're a man, woman, rich, poor, master of society, social nobody. Find Jesus and surrender your life to him, the one who can meet your need. Second thing, cultivate a life of confession. We're working with some post-it notes this morning. Sometimes the, the spirit is speaking right up to 10 o'clock. Cultivate a life of confession. Confession doesn't come naturally to us. Repentance doesn't come naturally. We want to hide our sin. We want to minimize it. Even in the presence of God, who we know has forgiven us and cleansed all of our sins, we still sometimes just bring like the minimal amount, don't we? But if you want to hunger for God, if you want God to increase in your heart, be quick to confess. Go, go looking for your sin in prayer. Prayers of confession, they're not just not just confessing things that come that you know that you've done wrong. Prayer of confession is actually sinning and searching your heart, looking for ways that you've sinned against God and others so that you might be restored to him and find forgiveness. One of my favorite authors, Jack Miller, he says, repentance is simply falling into Jesus. Why would we resist falling into Jesus? Why would we not bring all of our sin before him and, and release it in his presence and just fall back into his love? The path to great love runs through confession. If you're going to Kansas City on I-70, the path runs through Sedale, right? Can't go around The path to love, the path to joy, the path to holiness, it goes through confession. Third thing, give him your whole life. Don't go back. Don't give him a portion. Don't say, I'll give you Sunday morning. I'll give you a bit of my, my work life. I'll, I'll, I'll think about, I'll plan to get in the community group. I'll give two and a half percent, but I expect blessing in return. 
But if, if Jesus is who he says he is, like if he's legitimately the Messiah, the king of all the universe, like he's either nothing, like he's either crazy or he's actually him. So there's, there's really nothing makes sense in between those two. Like, relate to Jesus as absolutely nothing or absolutely everything. Every other response to Jesus is, is just confusing and, and illogical and dishonest. He's either nothing or he's everything. So give him nothing or give him everything. We've said before, the greatest temptation in our lives, especially if you're a Christian, it's, it's not doing drugs and getting drunk and getting thrown in jail. The greatest temptation you'll face is lukewarmness. It's just being spiritually dry and bored and just, just getting used to it, just being okay with it. This is the default mode of our hearts, even as believers. We, we get sucked back down into lukewarmness like gravity. We need to seek the Lord, seek to be continually refreshed and renewed in His presence. The enemy wins not by getting you to commit heinous crimes. Not even by getting you to abandon the faith or stop going to church. But the enemy wins when you're lukewarm. When you're just going through the motions. When you're a good, safe person, but you, you have no passion for God. You have no heart for the living God. Find him. Pursue him. Break your life. Knock down the door. Do whatever you have to do. Give him your whole life. Fourth and finally, devote yourself to worship and prayer. You know, if Jesus was still on earth every week, the application would be just go, just go find Jesus. Like look around the Sea of Galilee. You'll find him in like a synagogue or like oh, around a bunch of levels. I've got nothing else, just go find Jesus. But since he's not on earth, can you believe? That Jesus actually says it's even greater that he's not on earth. Because we have his spirit. Because we have this, this community. Because we have the love of the Father and the intercession of Jesus praying on our behalf, interceding for us. That's actually greater than having Jesus on earth. And so since we can't just say, go find Jesus, we say, devote yourself to worship and prayer. Worship and prayer is how we pour out our hearts to Jesus. How we pour out our lives to Jesus. Sing to him. Sing in church. Lift your hands. Sing until your throat hurts. Sing in the car. Sing at home. And pray. Don't, don't just you know, worry about getting it right and having the, the right forms of prayer. But just pour your heart out in the presence of God. Just talk to him. Just share everything with him. Just develop an ongoing, continual conversation with your father. You may have seen in your, in your bulletin or on the back of the bulletin, when you came in, we're doing three full days of worship, prayer, and fasting starting next Sunday. The, the heart of this is, is to increase our love for Jesus, to cultivate a greater hunger for the presence of God in our lives. We know that everything in this world, every, every attack of the enemy, every bit of our flesh remaining within us wants to just pull us back into lukewarmness. And so we've got to find ways to stir ourselves up and to, to come together as a community, to, to strengthen one another in our desires.
That's what we've done. We, we came together as a, as a staff team. We all kind of brought ideas for this year. And basically, we all brought this same idea. Like, this wasn't something I came up with and had just been laying out, like, planning for the last six months. Rather, as our, our staff team came together, Madison threw it out, hey, what about this idea? And three or four of us were like, yeah, I had that on my list, too. We just said, what if we take next week and next Sunday morning and committed to worship and prayer together? And then what if we do a worship night on that Sunday night that's going to be right here in this room? And then what if on Monday morning and Monday at lunch and Tuesday morning and Tuesday at lunch we have prayer meetings and then Monday night and Tuesday night we have worship gatherings? And what if we just invite folks to be fasting over those two and a half days? Not, not to, to make ourselves seem impressive to the Lord, not to just do hard things spiritually so that God might see us and bless us, but as a means of recognizing our great need of Him. I, I do not like fasting. I, like, it is so hard for me. I love food. Every time I'm hungry, I think, how do I get food in my body in the next 30 seconds? <clears throat> fasting helps us realize how desperately we are in need of Jesus, in need of His presence. And so fasting could look like the, the traditional form of staying for food. You can do it for part of the time, all of the time. Some of you are going to want to choose something else to, to fast from. If, if fasting from food is not appropriate for you, find something else you can fast from. I'm thinking of fasting from email. You're like, you've been fasting from email for six years. All of this is designed to support you in your pursuit of God. He's already pursuing you. This is how we turn around and recognize that his face is on us, and we, we turn towards him and we simply move towards him. The last reason we're doing this is, is on behalf of our community, on behalf of our city, on behalf of those who aren't here or in any other church this morning. We want to pray. We want to plead with God for this city that we love. Would you bring a, a new moment of awakening into our midst? Would you, would you turn things around in this city that we love? A lot of us didn't plan to be here in this stage of our lives, but by God's grace and plan, we're here, and we love it. We love this town. Lord, would you do something new here in 2024? And may we get to just be a small part of it. We're praying on behalf of our community in our city. This is a, a beautiful passage. It, it also points to something even greater. It's pointing to something beyond itself. One day, in a dramatic turn, it would be Jesus who poured out his life. Remember, Jesus broke his own life in two. His body was broken for us. His love was poured out for us. Jesus doesn't just, just speak forgiveness, but he makes the way for it. He opens up the possibility for forgiveness. Somebody had to pay the penalty for our sin. The penalty was death. And so he went to the cross instead of us. And he rose again because death could not hold him down. This is what the story is pointing to. Never, never has love been poured out like it was on the cross. Never has love been poured out like it was on the cross. The greatest outpouring of love was not this woman, it was not any other person, it was Jesus on our behalf letting his entire life be broken in two so that his life 
could be poured out for us, an exchange of love. And so we who have been forgiven of so much, may we go and love much. May we love him much and love others much. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are just overwhelmed in your presence sometimes. We are, we are nothing but a whole lot of need, Lord Jesus. We, we bring nothing to this relationship besides our, our lack and our need. And Lord, you don't, you don't look to us with a, with a scowl, but you smile on us and, and you, you know you know us, you know who we are, you know what we've been through, you know how, we, how we've tried and failed. And you say, I'm so glad you came. I'm so glad you're here. Your sins are forgiven. Though they are many, they're forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Lord, may we hear that in our hearts this morning. May it go deep in our own hearts. May we believe it and live from it like that. Lord, for anybody here that has never felt that voice, inside them, never put their faith in Christ. Lord, we pray that right now you would reveal your great love to them and draw them to yourself in a way that they cannot resist and renew them, give them your Holy Spirit, Lord God, we pray. Lord, we love you. We commit this, this next week in the year, we commit this year to, to you, Lord. Lord, we don't do this for ourselves or, or for the name of Trinity at all, but we long for more of you in our midst. Would you protect us? Would you guide us? Would you go before us? Would you sustain us? Lord, we want more of you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.